Welcome to this Food Thing podcast. This is the place where we talk about our relationship with food, whether it is friend or foe, easy or less so, and how it affects our behavior. I'm so excited to introduce our first ever video course, the Creative Recovery Accelerator, or for ease, the CRA. What story do you tell yourself about your eating disorder? What feelings and emotions are you trying to avoid with your ED behaviors? How do you talk to your body? And what beliefs are you hanging on to to keep you where you are? The CRA will work on all ED and addictive behaviors. And wherever you are along your recovery journey, it will help you either stay on track, start or accelerate further. Make peace with yourself, shift your perspective and get well. I know how hard it is to let go of ED and addictive behaviors, which is why I've created the CRA, so we can help as many people as possible. Just visit lovethisfoodthing.com forward slash accelerator for all of the details. Here's today's episode. Welcome back to Love This Food Thing podcast. I'm delighted to be here for the second time with Ali Utram. For anyone who missed Ali's first interview, you can catch up on your favorite podcast player. Ali is a former world-class athlete and exercise and movement is the theme of this episode. Movement and exercise on many levels throughout one's lifespan and particularly in relation to eating disorder behaviors from which Ali is recovered. So we are going to deep dive. Ali, welcome back to Love This Food Thing podcast. Thank you for generously having me back. It's great to be here. Ah, uh, no, you're the one generous with your time. Ali's been brilliant because she's made me focus. <laughs> And she's made me write down questions. And I just want to say it's the first time I've had a piece of paper in front of me with questions so that we have some kind of structure. And I like it. So thank you, Ali. So yeah, we're going to deep dive. Um, Also, I didn't mention, again, if you didn't hear Ali's first interview, she's also an integrative psychotherapist. Um, She's multi-talented, does so many things. But for this episode, we're going to concentrate on exercise and movement. So first up, Ali, what, what does exercise actually mean to you? How does it make you feel? Um, I'd say exercise is my outlet, my strength and my sanity. It's a way for me to relieve my stress and clear my head. It's also really important to my energy levels. Um, Without my regular workouts, I'd feel sluggish and really struggle to be as productive as I am. How often do you work out then? I do train every day um, and I do a variety of high intensity interval training, steady state cardio, weight. So I mix it up. Um, and even when I'm feeling tired or stressed, a quick hit session always makes me feel better and refocuses me. And I think it's the physical activity paradox that you can expend energy and end up with more, but that's what exercise does or it does for me anyway. Um, and if I'm frustrated or mentally blocked, exercise helps me generate positive energy and come back to a problem with a different mindset and perspective. It's also a real mood booster and it gives me a daily dose of the kind happiness chemicals like dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and yep. the kind of euphoric endorphins. <laughs> and also it lowers your inflammation levels, doesn't it? And I think if you stress the body physically and then you, you put pressure onto it and then you release it, isn't it your parasympathetic nervous system that kicks in and calms everything down? Is that right? Yes. It's the 
sympathetic nervous system that's responsible for high physiological arousal and then it's the parasympathetic nervous system that's responsible kind of for rest and digest um so yes it helps kind of lower the stress hormone cortisol as well so as well as mental health benefits there's a huge number of Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Every study that's done on exercise is like, we have to move, we have to, we have to do something, you know, because that's what we're meant to do. Do you still train like an athlete? I, I do. um, I think I've just got that mentality. I started, well, I got my first um, England vest when I was 12 um, for cross country and athletics. And I just think I, I I can't train other than 100% and I get regularly called a machine or a beast or Duracell <laughs> bunny or um anyway yeah a, a, a number of a number of different things but yes I I do still train like an athlete even though I'm not uh working towards a particular race or competition I I just love testing my limits really um yes yeah. uh, clearly that's really important to you that you test yourself to your limits but as you've have you as you've grown older have you had to adapt your workouts or do you you can't be at the same level as when you were in your early 20s or you is it even higher no I, I absolutely had to adapt um what I do I I'm injured at the moment um I haven't been able to run for a while um which is really disappointed disappointing and whenever I get injured I get this kind of anxiety state and then I just have to think okay well what can my body do um so I've gone from long distance running I then went on and did triathlons um and I did actually get a GB vest for that and then amazing I broke my back sadly in a road traffic accident I was on my bike um and um yeah so then that put pay to that. And then I've switched over to CrossFit and rowing and using the ski erg. Uh, and when I was doing CrossFit, uh, I loved that I was part of a encouraging community with a kind of shared hunger and passion. And it was a kind of unconditionally accepting environment full of strong women and men who constantly support and lift each other up. And there wasn't any body shaming or judgment. And we were just kind of grafting to be the best and fittest versions of ourselves. And I love the fact that in the kind of CrossFit environment, there are no mirrors um and it's kind of like adult PE really um yeah so that was fun um and I think just generally I love pushing myself to my limits and realizing my potential and learning about myself as a person along the way my character my resilience mm-hmm. my drive my gritty determination my commitment and my trust in the process um it- yeah yeah <clears throat> Is it, it? It's fair to say, I wanted to, to talk to you actually about what it was like when you were competing as a teenager, because we did touch on that before, but we didn't, I don't think we really went into it because we had so much else we wanted to talk about. Yeah. Is it fair to say that when you exercise at your kind of level and your intensity, you are going to injure yourself, you do get injured? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I, during my teenage years, because I wasn't nourishing myself very well, because I was, um, running with anorexia I got regularly got stress fractures right tibia left tibia Ah. second metatarsal um because yeah my bone density was in the kind of osteopenic range which is just short of being um osteoporotic um and 
even though we're not running now. Uh, yes, I think injury is a part and parcel of being an athlete and pushing yourself. And also I'm not very good at listening to my body when it whispers, so then ends up having to scream. Um, and it's far harder for me to rest than it is to train. So I I need to learn as I'm getting older and my body is not allowing me to do as much. I've just got to try and shift the focus. Um, it's, yeah. hard. it's hard though, isn't it? I mean, I find it difficult and there's no chance of me ever being a world-class athlete, but, um, you know, if it, if it's, if it's one of the things that you do to calm yourself down when it, when it's taken away and you just feel so good, don't you? After you've done whatever exercise you, you choose to do, it's really yeah. difficult when it's not available. What was it? So when you were competing as a teenager, so you just said that you were running and, you were anorexic or yep and in, in the grip of that yeah um also i have a little note here that says you know you were formulating your sense of a runner's body can we talk about that yeah so when i began competing as a young teenager i i, I was already beginning to formulate a sense of what it meant to have a runner's body so in part this idea came from professional senior athletes i'd seen at competitions or how commentators discussed athletes' bodies in TV coverage. However, it was also shaped by the people I saw winning the races I was running in. Right. And I perceived the typically very slight girls at the front to have runners' bodies as they complied with the model of leanness that I saw as synonymous with being a good athlete. And the perspective I developed within the sport was compounded by running being conflated with weight loss in popular culture and in conversations with non-runners, I often heard assumptions that because I was a runner, I would need to be, inverted commas, careful about what I ate, as if being careless with my nutrition would exclude me from being an athlete. Um, and so I suppose from these experiences, the idea I came to of a runner's body was one that was slim, but muscular with no excess fat. And I normalized this idea regarding it as a given and using it as a means of assessing how my own body fit within the sport. And what I hadn't considered was that this norm was not necessarily healthy or necessary. Can you have that kind of body and eat well? Yeah. Can, can one, not you, can one? Yeah, absolutely. I suppose we, we can't change the, the body type we have. There's certain body types, there's a endomorph an ectomorph and a mesomorph and, mm -hmm. and basically an, an ectomorph is someone who is naturally very tall and lean i suppose if you think about kenyans ethiopians yeah, um, yeah. Tend to, you know that there's nothing to them um but you know they eat well so you can absolutely eat well if you're naturally meant to be a certain body shape ah. um but if you're trying to change your body into a type that it's not then you're keeping it below it so so everybody's body has a, a set weight range at which it functions best okay. and if you're below or above that range your body is try, going to try and get into that range so your body kind of fluctuates normally by two to three kilograms within this range um and that's something that's determined by genetics. So I guess if you're not happy with your body, you should have chosen different parents, which is something we don't have a lot of choice in. Um, so, um, yes, it is absolutely possible to be, to be slim, lean and eat well, if that's 
how you're meant to be. Got you. Got you. Yeah. So when you were okay, let's. I just. I'm. I'm. We did touch on this. We talked about the fact that you ran professionally and competed on very little food. Mm-hmm. And I know that you've you've done damage to your bone density. I do want to know how you built your bone density up, actually, because I think that's a real factor for yeah. women, particularly when you get older. So let's just do that. How yeah. did you rebuild your bone density? And then particularly for women who are menopausal, postmenopausal, who have maybe not eaten very much in their, I don't know, in their early years and uh, have done have over-exercised. Um, yep, that was that was me. How do you then build up the density? Well, I, I've never had a, a natural period. So when I got stress fractures in my early teens, um, I was put on an estrogen replacement because it's, it's east, it's estrogen, it's it's body fat that produces estrogen, which has a preventative effect against bone loss. So when estrogen levels go down, that impacts on the bone. So I was markedly below what my bone density should have been during my teenagers, but a combination right. of HRT and eating better, ensuring I had the right amount of calcium, vitamin D, and doing some weight-bearing exercise has meant that my bone density has um, restored itself. But it's during the teenage years that you're laying down bone, so it's really important to get the right nourishment um during those years and then our bone density certainly decreases as we get older um so i guess it's it's just ensuring that we continue to do some weight bearing exercise some strength exercise um this is Going, yeah, bone, bone loss can't can't be re- regained no it can't can it so if you okay so if you're like 55 and you have osteoporosis which can't be reversed can you minimize the effect of it by strength training uh lifting weights eating really well yes i'd say i'd say those would be very positive things to, to do yeah absolutely um okay and i i guess the damage that you did to yourself health wise Better that you did it when you were very, very young than carrying it on for years, would you say? Would you say that that went in, in your favour? Or were you still behaving like that in your 20s? No, I was still struggling in my 20s. <gasps> ah, yeah, okay. It's, okay. It's, um, yeah, it's been a bit of an ongoing battle for a little while um, right. until you know things, things progressively settled. And I was able to look at this kind of underlying psychological route as to why I wasn't able to nourish myself. Um, and it wasn't anything to do with food. It was to do with kind of emotional issues. So yeah. Um, it certainly didn't, didn't finish in my teenage years, but, but certainly moving, moving away from long distance running into sports that necessitate a strong body rather yeah. than a very, very lean body has helped. Um, Cause at 16, I ran in the world junior cross country championships in Beijing and miraculously placed fourth. And I say miraculously because of how mal- malnourished my body was. Yeah, I was, I was the captain of 
the Great Britain team, which comprised six athletes, and shockingly, four of us had an eating disorder. However, I guess that's not entirely surprising because traits of great athletes and characteristics of anorexia nervosa are very similar. So I could hide and legitimize my eating disorder behavior for a long time. Um, What appears as dedication to a sport in some women athletes may be compulsive activity, masking anorexia behavior, and then kind of misperceived as attributes in the athletic world and therefore encouraged and reinforced And so dieting and running kind of gave me a sense of control that I lacked in my home life. And once the eating disorder had a grip on me, I kind of lacked the skill and insight and awareness to pull myself out. Um, When you're running in that, okay, I mean, when you're competing at that level, what's the body actually using to burn for fuel? Or is it... I mean, this whole sort of trade-off between you, you eat some food, I'm going to be really basic here, but you eat some yeah. food, your body metabolizes and breaks it down. You either you either consume the, the fat, you consume the protein for the energy, or you consume the glycogen. At that level, if you're really not fueling yourself, is, is your body, is it better? No, this is going to sound terrible. Is it better to, to run at that level and actually not be eating very much? Does something else happen chemically within the body that we're less aware about? What, 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 what you know, help me out here. I'm kind of intrigued about it. Yeah, I suppose you, you think about the energy balance, energy in equals energy out, then you stay the same weight, but your, your metabolism changes and adjusts itself to match your energy requirements. So if you are under eating, then your metabolism slows down to accommodate um, the decreased calorie intake. Uh, certainly, you, you I, well, I wrote a book called Running on Empty. You can run on empty for a while um, and performance keeps increasing up until a point where you, you reach breakdown. Um, and I think we were going to kind of touch on red S, which stands for yes. relative energy deficiency in sports. Um, and that's basically a shortage of energy available to keep up with the demands of exercise on top of essential daily functions. And it simply is a mismatch between energy intake and expenditure. Okay, we're going to take a quick break now. That's interesting because before we do take the break, the Ethiopians and the Kenyans, I remember reading an article in their running camps, they're not eating very much, are they? Because they have to earn it, don't they? So it's just fascinating. Let's go back to that in a minute. We're just going to take a quick break. Hi, welcome back to Love This Food Think podcast. I'm here with Ali Uchum. We're talking all things exercise and movement. And Ali has now found what she wanted to say about osteoporosis, which is terrific. And um, yeah, over to you, Ali. What did you want to say? Because I think I probably pulled you off the topic. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. Um, I was just thinking with the right nutrition, mindset and support, reversing most of the effects of chronic low energy availability should be possible. Um, So... One common concerning and potentially irreversible implication of having low energy availability is is low bone density, which we were talking about about before. And that does lead to increased risk of stress fractures and osteoporosis. Um, 
So bone turnover, so the development and repair, it's hindered by the same suppression of hormones that causes menstrual dysfunction alongside nutritional deficiencies like calcium and vitamin D that accompany an energy deficit. And this is particularly worrying amongst young female athletes or anyone really since 60 to 80% of lifetime bone mass is formed by age 18 and peak bone mass is achieved by 26 to 30. Right. So for every year an athlete spends in a state of amenorrhea, which is Mm. without natural periods, bone mass is estimated to decrease by two to six percent. God, that's a lot. Yeah. So for both males and females, the potential implications of REDS, which we're going to talk about, include an inability to reach peak bone mass for young athletes and irreversible bone loss for older athletes. So yeah, it is a lot, isn't it? It's huge. What about for mm. someone who's not an athlete, who is over-exercising and under-eating probably the similar outlook? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which okay. is concerning. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I just want to um, pick this up before we move on, just about the Kenyan and Ethiopian running, I said running camps, maybe they're called training camps. I just wanted to say that I remember reading that there wasn't much food available um, and the running is incredible, but also the drive is different because it's a way out of a way out of poverty, isn't it? It's completely Absolutely. different from becoming an athlete in the Western world. Well, I'm sure some people might disagree, but yeah, pretty different. So I just wanted to posit that. So let's talk about Reds. Um, can you yeah. give us a definition again? Yeah, of course. Um, it stands for relative energy deficiency in sports. Right. And it boils down to a simple mismatch between energy intake and expenditure. So it's when there's a shortage of energy available to keep up with the demands of exercise on top of daily functions like growth, respiration and digestion. Um, And it's not reserved for the upper echelons of elite sport, nor for the extremely lean or underweight so for those teetering on the edge of underfueling, mm. the slow creep of red S symptoms can subtly take effect while perhaps being chalked up as normal outcome for an athletic lifestyle. Um, so the health when the health and performance consequences of low energy availability can be severe, whether this occurs intentionally by means of deliberate calorie restriction or unintentionally by simply underestimating the energy demand of training or activity level. And without wanting to depress you, um, sports research is uncovering some increasingly scary statistics when it comes to athlete health. Yeah. So the the estimated risk of Red S ranges from 40% among Olympians to 58% among athletes from a diverse range of activities and as many as 60% of female and 30% of male high school cross-country runners aren't eating enough and perhaps most terrifyingly of all 64% of school girls enjoying sport today won't be participating by their mid-teens 
um, and that came from a study um, from the Project Red S website, which I'll refer to later. But um, 40% of Olympians, that's a hefty statistic, isn't it? That's massive, which is nearly half. Let's talk about um, the schoolgirls and just, you know, regular regular folk, as they say. Is it that they're not eating enough or is it that they're not eating the right foods for their bodies and for that amount of exercise? Or just, I mean, does it also happen with just daily activity levels? Yes, of course it does, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so what happens? Does it compromise your immune system? Does it raise your inflammatory markers? Does Does your system just very quietly and slowly start to struggle yeah or absolutely all of the above right um yeah um and and any anyone can be at risk and any endurance activities and those that promote a low body weight for aesthetics or performance present the greatest risk for two main reasons the first is the energy demands of endurance activities can easily be underestimated, especially when appetite is suppressed during or after exercise. And secondly, when there's a pressure to look a certain way or achieve a certain weight or body composition, athletes are more likely to manipulate food intake in an attempt to gain a perceived performance advantage. Um, So a weight loss and ED behaviour is always a factor in REDS? Not always ED behaviours. You weight, weight loss and eating disorders can as well. Red S affects athletes of all shapes and sizes. Yet one common misconception surrounds not being thin enough to have the problem. So since everyone responds to an energy de- deficit differently, it's possible and common to experience red S while remaining within or even above a healthy BMI. Um, So since human bodies are naturally programmed to protect themselves from the perceived threat of starvation, they may counteract weight loss by decreasing metabolism and increasing the stress response. So even in the face of severe low energy availability, weight loss may not occur. So uh, mm, go on, sorry. No, no, I was just saying Red S is not limited to athletes with eating disorders or any form of disordered eating. A deficit is simply created by a mismatch between the energy consumed in one's diet and the energy expended via exercise on top of daily biological processes. So no matter how a state of chronic no energy availability is created, the physical outcome is the same. So, yeah. How do you know? I mean, my, you know, someone said to me, well, how do you know that you're not consuming enough um, and your your output is too high for what you're consuming? I would go, well, it's because I know how I feel when I'm well. What happens? What happens if you don't know how you feel when you're well? How, how do, is there a, is there a test that someone can do or is it how you feel in your life and in your, in your body? I think in terms of looking out, for markers in terms of like health and performance you'd probably experience a decrease in your stamina strength uh, recovery immunity mood 
um, sex drive, self-esteem, metabolism, coordination, concentration, training, adaption, and overall performance. So I guess you'd be looking for a decrease in some of those aspects. And then maybe an increase in illness, injury. We talked about injury before, soft tissue and bone. Uh, Fragility of bones, risk of osteoporosis, hormone dysfunction, menstrual irregularity, and with men, erectile dysfunction. So I guess those would be pretty indicators. Yeah. Quite a list there. (laughs) Um, So obviously the eating disorder behaviours that are a cause for concern would be, well, I think all of them actually, wouldn't they? I was going to say, well, restriction. And I'm thinking, no, because if you're binging and purging, I mean, all of them are a cause for concern. Absolutely. Yeah, they are indeed. Um, um, As you you work as a psychotherapist, how, mm, what do you, what's your definition of obsessive? Um, obsessive exercise. What's obsessive exercise you mean? I, I guess it's when something is taken to extreme. Mm-hmm. To your detriment. Yeah, but then not always to your detriment because I'm thinking of a comparison of psychological profiles between athletes and those with eating disorders and perfectionism, black and white thinking, high levels of self-control, high self-expectations, competitiveness, compulsiveness, repetitive exercise routines, etc. They would be common across two. I don't think you can be excellent at something without an element of obsessiveness. Yeah. Uh, and high focus and I guess putting a lot of self-evaluative eggs in one basket and those traits can be a double-edged sword. Um, I suppose self-criticism, if that's something you have a tendency towards, it can be used in a positive way, can't it, to fuel a desire to improve, build on abilities and be at one's best. But if you turn it into a kind of self-attacking, self-persecuting way, then um, yeah. It's uh, not very self-compassionate and not very conducive to How do you, um, sorry to interrupt you there, cut you off at the end. How do you, you must have clients who, who exercise obsessively, who maybe want to stop. Let's, let's have a mythical, let's create a mythical character here. Well, not mythical, but a pretend character who comes to you, who has eating disorder behaviors, who is clearly for you suffering from red s i think i called it reds earlier didn't i and is aware that things aren't right and maybe wants to stop exercising but can't let go of the attachment to that obsessive exercising even when they're tired or maybe injured i know that happens a lot i mean i did that yeah Yeah. so how do you approach that for anyone who's listening if that's what's going on for you it is a lose-lose situation. It doesn't miraculously get better, does it? You have to intervene on your own behalf. What would you? What kind of advice would you give, or, or how would you approach that, Ali? Yeah, well, I think there's a distinct difference between health-orientated movement, yeah, and weight loss-driven exercise, right? And if there is a compulsive drive to exercise as a compensatory behavior either to 
earn food or burn off food or to change your shape. And then there's all consuming guilt afterwards if you haven't exercised. Yeah. Then that's just not an enjoyable place to be in. Um, And excessive exercise is often central to how eating disorders take hold and retain their grip. And in many cases, it does compromise treatment and contributes to relapse and is part of the emotional and cognitive fabric of the disorder. So I guess cognitive and excessive exercise may serve many anorexic functions. It may be a means of burning calories, exacerbating weight loss, or otherwise exerting control over one's body. And it also may be a form of self-punishment and or it may be a way to reduce anxiety or mitigate depressive symptoms. And it often disguises itself as a life-enhancing thing, but the disguise is just that. So you mentioned how would I work with clients. Mm. Um, So I guess formal treatment for anorexia and recommendations for independent recovery usually apply the simple principle that physical activity should be minimised to allow all calories consumed to support weight restoration and other aspects of nutritional rehabilitation after starvation. And alongside these physiological reasons to avoid exercise, continuing exercise before making significant progress in recovery could be psychologically damaging by maintaining the obsessive compulsive aspect of the disorder. So you have to negotiate to take some time off. Yes. Um, And I obviously exercise should be reintroduced um, and it's just a question of kind of how and when so at some point the recovery Mm. process must Mm. also involve establishing a healthy relationship with movement activity and our bodies right Um, although structured exercise and sport need never be part of your life if you don't want them to be just like food itself functional physical activity is not something we can simply abstain from post-recovery and so yeah. the dividing lines between necessary and unnecessary movement are blurry just like those between beneficial and compulsive movements so the real question is not a single all or nothing question should i engage in physical activity at all during recovery it's really the set of pragmatic sliding scale questions and how I guess how and what is my intention you have to know what your intention is don't you and you don't exactly you have to stop like you know bullshitting yourself basically yeah and I'm always about the why behind the what that's what we need to find so I suppose the questions maybe we need to ask are you know where is the boundary between necessary functional exercise and optimal exercise and what are the benefits and risks of doing one or the other Um, And what kind of movements and activity and exercise or sport are more or less likely to be helpful or harmful? And how do physiological versus psychological risks and benefits stack up? And then finally, how do the answers to these questions change during illness recovery and post-recovery? Here's the thing. Yeah. If you are recovering and you're not exercising, I'm going to just interpret it as simply as saying the deal is is that you have to learn to sit with your feelings don't you you have to learn to sit with the emotions that are you find so unbearable that's maybe propelling you out outside to have a run when you when you shouldn't be running because you haven't got enough energy etc cetera, etc cetera, as we've been talking about and you have to learn to to 
to sit with it and to sit within. Yeah. Um, and when I work with clients, um, there's something called DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, um, mm. and CBTE. And one of the kind of modules is about distress intolerance, which right. is the, it's the perceived inability to tolerate uncomfortable, aversive, unpleasant emotions accompanied by the desperate desire to escape them. Right. And I suppose that's where any kind of addictive behavior comes in because short term, it's absolutely fabulous. It anesthetizes pain, it self-soothes, it numbs emotions, it gives you that distraction. Yeah. But long term, it never works because you're not looking at the underlying reasons that are causing that emotion. And no emotion is bad. Like a variation of sadness or anger or anxiety isn't hugely comfortable, but all those emotions are telling us something. And we need to look at what those emotions are telling us rather than, I suppose, self-medicating by going for a run. Um, and, I, yeah. and I guess also exercise is, is seen as a really positive thing, which it can be. So it's kind of seen as a positive addiction, but anything that's got its claws into you isn't isn't great. Absolutely. And we're talking very much about it in relation to eating disorder behaviours because it's such a vast subject. Mm. Um, before we wrap up this bit... What do I want to talk about? Or maybe we'll put that. Yeah, because we were talking about exercising throughout throughout the ages, from the 10th century to the 23rd. Um, I mean, my understanding, or I personally believe that to stay well is to keep moving and exercising and be functionally fit for as long as possible. Mm. And to have it to be part of your everyday life. And it to be nurturing and nourishing. I, I totally agree. And I, I think it's all about making sustainable lifestyle changes. We're not going to stick with something that we don't enjoy. So I guess it's finding an exercise or a form of movement that is meaning for you. And that might be something that gives you social connection with others or... Um, I suppose in terms of bringing exercise back into the equation when yeah. you're recovering, then you get kind of yoga and walking and free rest, free weights with rest days in between are, you know, good, good things to, to start with. Um, and certainly when you're talking about kind of through the ages, um, exercise is really important, a part of nearly everyone's health. Um, cause it, as an older adult, it helps you live longer, healthier, and a more independent life and prevents and delays diseases, diabetes, osteoporosis. Um, so I suppose it's looking at trying to include elements of strength, endurance, balance, and flexibility uh, in, in what you do. Yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. We're just going to take a quick break. Oh, welcome back to Love This Feeding Podcast. I'm here with Ali Uchram and we're just coming, this is when we're on our last bit, our last furlong. You like the uh, use of furlong there, Ali, or whatever, whatever you say as an athlete. Final furlong. Furlong, yes. Um, last bit of the track. Um, yes, I would like to talk to you. I know that you um, have written a book 
running on empty and you give talks and you are you represent various organizations i'd like to talk to you about what changes you would like to see in society and actually particularly in the sports world because that's where you were honed what would you like to say about that yeah, so we're doing our sprint finish now. Um, so yeah, I, I'm passing I, the baton. Yay! Cool. Right, <laughs> I will do my best. <laughs> um, lactic acid's building up. Yeah, I'm exhausted. Great. I'm I'm having an orange. Okay, okay. <laughs> oh, lucky you. <laughs> um, so yeah, I believe that fixed perceptions we have of what bodies in sports should look like are or can be inherently detrimental, and at a bare minimum, holding on to these ideas will mean that no matter how well individuals perform, their performances will not be seen as legitimate if their bodies don't match expectations. Right. So shame, anxiety and feelings of illegitimacy come hand in hand for those who fall into this category. And in sports like distance running, where leanness is an essential part of the aesthetic, norms are set around a model of short-term success rather than health and sustainable performance. Um, So to challenge the limited and potentially harmful preconceptions we have of what bodies in sport should look like, I think we need to make an active effort. Um, How would you do that? By running campaigns, changing the way we talk about it? Yeah, so I think we beginning with what we can do as individuals we need to work to reset our own perceptions and make them more pluralistic and inclusive so that being an athlete and doing a sport well or enjoyably is what informs our model of what success looks like and we can avoid letting our normative beliefs affect others by not commenting on athletes bodies and we can support others to reevaluate their own beliefs and individuals such as commentators journalists and influencers have a responsibility to not perpetuate harmful norms and to reshape reshape the public conversation around aesthetics being a determinant of performance and i think governing bodies need to play a much greater role in both looking after the well-being of athletes and in considering the knock-on effects of selecting unwell athletes or influencing the perceptions of what success looks like to junior or developing athletes Um, and in the same way that we have constructed these ideas we have the ability to challenge and change them and I think for the health and happiness of people in sport it's imperative we do so. And yeah I'm just thinking about schools and lack of sports in schools now I don't actually know this but my understanding is that it's no I do know that the money's been cut over the years and lots of schools don't have um, any greenery or they don't have a, a pitch or, you know, I did lots of sport at school. It was readily available. I don't know how true that is now. Um, what could happen at that age around particularly sport? Because if kids want to compete in sport, what could happen then around exercise and movement and competitive sport? Yeah, like I agree with you. I think it's really sad if... Um, PE is being pushed out of the curriculum because it's it's super helpful on so many levels. It's and we, and we, we can learn a lot, can't we? Um, yeah, and it is being pushed out, isn't it? In the same way that drama and art gets pushed out, or music. Seemingly so, yes. Um, 
and I think as well as schools like we need to kind of promote health and resilience so kind of coaches and, and personal trainers um, can also serve as protective factors and have positive influences if they adopt a personal orientated coaching style which builds self-esteem and promotes physical conditioning and demonstrates the value of teamwork rather than a negative performance orientated one so they can kind of emphasize factors that contribute to personal success such as motivation and enthusiasm rather than kind of focusing on body weight or shape related goals and i think it's also really important isn't it to look at social influences and online fitness communities that emphasize a very particular obsessive way to eat and train yeah and it's key to ensure that you're receiving healthy attitudes towards size and shape and ask yourself why you're training is it from a place of love or punishment and also do a little inventory of who your inverted commas following because i guess you know social media is 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 a highlight reel isn't it and not real life and the content's manipulated but commonly mistaken for reality and body image and appearance ideals are unrealistic and inaccurate yeah that's a very good point actually very good and also it's political isn't it because sport or the the, let's talk about the culture of exercise and movement it should be available or needs to be available for everybody because you know joining a gym is generally quite pricey or having a personal trainer you have to pay for a personal trainer um Local gyms are few and far between, really, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, community gyms. Yeah, absolutely. So it's um, kind of, it's not it's not easily available, I don't think. I don't know, I don't have kids, so I don't know what it's like, but I don't know what it's like if, you're, if, you're, if your kids want to, to do stuff, how they, how they do it. I know there are clubs and stuff, but um, I just think there's a, a kind of diminishing of the availability of sport and exercise within the community what do you think about that yeah well like yourself I don't have kids either so I'm not um I'm not 100% sure but I suppose there's there's things like um the park run which is often happens on a Saturday it's a 5k run and that's kind of free all over the UK and I guess you know that there's there are kind of community teams whether it be kind of football etc I'm sure that's accessible um it's not something that is hugely familiar in my world because I don't have little little people yeah. um but certainly yeah uh it's really important to pr- to promote movement isn't um, it yeah just yeah. As, as a necessary like breathing or absolutely learning how to calm yourself down or instead of it becoming this thing like oh it's meditation or whatever it's just like a new way to in, inhabit a new way of being and, and of living um for your to feel good you know we well, want to feel I- good don't we Absolutely. Exercise is a natural antidepressant and mental health conditions are booming. And certainly the pandemic was a perfect storm for them. Um, And yeah, that's a whole, whole nother subject. What happened during the pandemic Uh, down there, but certainly, (laughs) yeah, in terms of mental health improvement, like I mentioned before, um, the daily dose D-O-S-E of happiness chemicals. D is the dopamine, O is the oxytocin, S is the serotonin and E is the endorphins. You know, those are all wonderful yeah. uh, chemicals to have um, floating around your body, um, certainly. Yeah, and it doesn't take that much movement to get them going. No. I am testament to that. <laughs> <laughs> so so where, can, um, where can listeners find support and further information? 
Well, I th- if, if anyone's struggling with disordered eating, then BEAT is the UK's national eating disorder charity, yeah, which has yeah. helplines, information and support. Um, and they've also got a help finder section on their website, which is an online directory of support services and therapists where myself and others who specialise in working with eating disorders can be found. Um, and we touched on Red S as well. And there's a project Red S, which provides a list of trusted specialists and advice about talking to your doctor. And they're continually updating their athlete advice and supporter advice pages and also encourage followers to share recommendations or feedback. So I think those would be the two two areas I would suggest yeah Yeah, brilliant and and normally because we're just coming to the end now Ali thank you so much for your time and expertise it's been fascinating for me normally I would ask you you, what five foods you take to an island but you've done that (laughs) um, so I've got this thing about uh, the metaphors of eating disorder behaviors so for instance one of my big metaphors was binging and purging and it how it rocked up in all the other areas of my life I'm going to ask you, what's the metaphor of running? What does the metaphor of running mean in your life? Or how, where else does it show up? Do you run towards? Do you, do, do you run away? Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Just a brief well, one. You don't have to go too deep. No, I, well, I think running is a great metaphor for life because what you get out of it is what you put into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and our life has a start and a finish and how we run our race to get from start to finish is critically important so that we can win in every area of our life, whether it's spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, relationally. Um, And I think we also need to pace ourselves so that we allow time to strengthen, recharge and evaluate at each mile marker of the marathon or or whatever. Yeah. and I think it's also important to stay stay in your lane because you might not be a marathon runner and instead prefer prefer track or field or a totally different sports. So I guess it's it's just keeping your eye on your your journey rather than keeping looking over and seeing how others are doing and envying their race and their lane. So you need to keep sore with your strength and keep your blinkers on and concentrating on the bit the best version of you. Um, and mm. yeah. I'm also just thinking of the older you get, you you know, the tortoise and the hare. You become both, don't you? You are Absolutely. sometimes the hare, sometimes you're the tortoise and maybe something Thank in between. Yeah. Ali, thank you so much for coming back on. Just Aww. delightful. Thank you. My, thank you so much. pleasure. Thank you for having me again. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Love This Food Thing. If you'd like to reach me, I'm on Instagram at Love This Food Thing, or you can head to our website, lovethisfoodthing.com. Join our community. Everyone's welcome. Catch you in the next episode.